welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we return to Vance Havner. I grew up with the Bible in one hand and a bird book in the other. I never knew the day when I didn't feel the need to preach and write. I memorized Bible portions, made little Sunday school talks, and sent my first sermon to our small town newspaper when I was nine. Today, Vance Havner presents a study of the Church of Thyatira from Revelation. According to the clock up here, I'm supposed to preach for an hour and 45 minutes, but don't worry. Uh, it's right, otherwise it's pretty good illustration about some fellows and some teachers and some doctrines that are almost right and yet wouldn't do to go by. See, I, I think we have wonderful illustration of that right here. In fact, the business is sort of fits in with what we're talking about this morning in a way. We come in the second chapter of Revelation to the message to Thyatira, beginning with verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things set the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father, and I will give them a morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thyatira was a center of trade in royal purple. You remember that when Paul preached at Philippi, Lydia was converted. She was from Thyatira, and she dealt in royal purple. Our Lord has, first of all, as he generally does, with some exceptions in this series, Words of commendation for this church, and quite a, quite a commendation, too. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and patience and works, and the last to be more than the first. Now, that's, that's quite a good deal to say. I know your love and your ministry to others and your faithfulness and your patience. And uh, it seems that Thyatira was growing and going and glowing. 
And this is the very opposite of Ephesus because at Ephesus they had started off well and they'd left their first love, but they still have love here. At Ephesus the first was more than the last, and here the last is more than the first, and in Sardis neither first nor last was acceptable to the Lord. Quite a difference. What more would you ask of a church, beloved, if it had all this and was uh, farther along than when it started? Yet they needed to repent. They needed a revival. I think if we had visited Thyatira, we'd have said, well, this crowd doesn't need anything. But our Lord knew what was wrong. And so he says in verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. He always knows what's wrong as well as what's right. Now what was wrong here? Well, the Lord says that woman, Jezebel. You notice that he does not generalize, he particularizes. That's out of style now. Uh, Mr. Finney used to have a sermon on how to preach so as to convert nobody. And he said one way to do it is preach about sin in general, but never mention the sins of your congregation. Just talk about sin and everybody will go out shaking their heads and saying sin is terrible. But they won't do anything. But you name a few of them and somebody may get mad, but uh, something will happen one way or another. Our Lord named the trouble. That's what old Nathan did when he appeared before David. He told a story and then he made the application. It's easy enough to tell a story, you know, but it's another thing to make the application. And that's pretty hard if the application is sitting right out in front of you. And that was the case with Nathan. And Nathan said, you're it. You're what I'm talking about. And when it is a king yet, now that would be rough going, don't you think? And yet here was a man who could name the trouble. And then when Joshua lay on his face before God, you remember what God said, get up. There are times when a prayer meeting is out of order. Now, we need more people on their faces before God today, but God said, get up, you have to deal with a specific trouble in the camp. And they found out that it was Achan through the process that followed. But something had to be done about the main trouble. I think sometimes we have prayer meetings to avoid doing something else. I think it's a lot easier to get together and have a general prayer meeting and visit all the mission stations around the world and ask the Lord to send the sinners in, and I doubt whether he will, because it's our business to go after them and bring them in. And after all this aimless praying, I wonder whether we get anywhere much. I think we need some specific praying. Lord, point out the trouble. You do it, and then deal with it. Paul wrote to the folks at Corinth, they had a man in the church there who was a stumbling block. Paul didn't say there are so many good people at Corinth. We'll skip this one man. He said he named the trouble in that case enlightened by the Holy Spirit to make the application. If you went to the dentist with a bad tooth and he looked around inside your mouth and said, yes, you've got a troublesome molar back there in the corner, but... I like to look on the bright side of things. You've got a lot of good ones. And I don't want to make you uncomfortable. Why don't we specialize on the good ones and shine them up? I don't want to trouble you. And yet we want preachers today who stand in the pulpit and say, Well, I don't like to make the people uncomfortable. 
I don't want to give them the impression that I'm preaching against anything. So we'll just uh, accentuate the positive, and we'll just dwell on what's good around this place, and we'll not say anything about what's wrong. If I've heard that uh, one time, I've heard it 500 times. Talk about what's good at the place. Well, the Lord talked about what was good, but he spent most of his time in Thyatira talking about what was bad. Now, I can't help it, beloved. There it is in the book. And some of our sweet little theories go by the board today in the light of such a letter as this. That woman, Jezebel, my, my, that's terribly personal. Who would dare to name the trouble in Thyatira, in this era of sweet tolerance? Who was Jezebel? Well, uh, we know who she was in the Old Testament. I don't know who she was here. Some Bible scholars have said she was the pastor's wife. Oh, that's an awful thing to say. I wouldn't want... Brother, if I ever got up in a church and tried to put that interpretation, I'd want to know where my hat was and where the nearest exit was around the place. No, I don't think that's who it was. I, I, I Most of the... Folks I've known over the land, pastors and wives, wouldn't fit into any such categories as this at all. I know who she was in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. She was a Baal worshiper. She set up the worship of Baal, and her daughter Athaliah did the same thing over in Judah under uh, Jehoram, so that between the two of them they corrupted both kingdoms. She was one of the cleverest and one of the most dangerous women. She persecuted the prophets and Obadiah had to hide a hundred of those preachers in a cave. <laughs> well, any preacher that you'd have to hide in a cave wouldn't be worth much in broad daylight anyhow. But anyhow, they did hide a hundred of them in a cave. That's what the book says. And she was such a character that she scared old Elijah. Now, it took a lot to scare him. And the way he went to the solitudes and under that juniper said, Lord, all the good folks are gone but me and I don't feel so well myself today. <laughs> you know, I thought if old Elijah wanted to die, why didn't he just stay in Samaria and let Jezebel finish him off? <laughs> I don't think he really wanted to die, but he was kind of down in the dumps out there. And under that juniper, he said, Lord, I'm the surviving saint, the last one, about time for me to go. Well, Jezebel was an evil woman. A good woman is the best thing on earth. Last at the cross, first at the tomb. The church owes a debt that she can never pay. And you and I owe debts we can never pay to our homes, to godly wives and mothers. But an evil woman's the most dangerous thing on earth. And many false delusions have been begun by prophetesses. Not only do false teachers lead silly women astray, as the Bible says, but silly women prophetesses lead many astray. Now, whoever Jezebel of Thyatira was, she was a prophetess. She claimed inspiration. She taught and seduced Christians to commit fornication and eat things, sacrifice to idols. Now, uh, that to some extent was true of Balaam that we considered last night. But there's this added touch to Jezebelism. She taught what is called here the deep things of Satan, some highbrow philosophy 
out of the world of darkness, some ism of the devil. And in Pergamos it was Balaamism, and in Thyatira it was Baalism. Something mysterious and high-sounding that appealed to some of these Christians, just as some isms today appeal to some church members. You know how true that is. We have church members today that have heard good preaching and have read books and ought to know better. And you let some fellow come along with a lot of double-jointed words that nobody can pronounce, much less understand. And they'll take off after that false teaching to the amazement of everybody. When you'd think they'd know better, they won't accept the plain things of the word of God, but they'll accept fancy delusion. Oh, I know these things have some truth in them. They have to have enough truth to hold the lies together. We've got an old clock where I grew up, and it's right two times every day. I want something that's right all the time. I don't want something that's right just once in a while. The word of God's right all the time. Jezebelism is very popular these days. Jezebel is often very charming because Satan does his worst work as a mock angel, an angel of light. Jezebel may sound intellectual and cultured and refined, and it may seem unchristian to oppose her. Then Jezebel hates prophets. You can always identify her by that when a prophet comes to town. And when a prophet stands up in the church, if there are any prophets anymore, when the prophet stands up in the church and preaches, Jezebel hates him. She'd murder him on the spot. She wanted to murder Elijah on the spot. You see, any philosophy that makes it easier to sin is of the devil. Some people, when they grow older, they say, well, I used to take a firm stand for the faith, but I... I'm getting older now, and I want to be more mellow as I grow older. And the trouble with this mellow business is so many things get mellow just before they spoil. And a lot of Christians get that way. I want to be mellow as I grow older. I don't want to take a firm stand. So you have two opposites here in these churches, beloved. Now, I hear a lot of preaching today, lambasting the conservatives and the orthodox and the fundamental folks. And sometimes from the same source, I don't hear much about the other crowd. I think if you're going to condemn one crowd, you ought to condemn the other, to be fair. At Ephesus, they had fundamentalists who had left their first love. But at Thyatira, they had love. But they were so tolerant there. And so uh, lenient toward evil that Jezebel could creep in and put up an altar to Baal. Now, that's just as wrong as Ephesus. And if we're going to raise a big fuss today, and I think there are times, and I tried to do it the other night, about these folks that have their theology straight and none of the love of God in their heart, and we are being scandalized today by that sort of thing. Everybody knows it. But don't uh, give all your attention to that crowd. Save a little ammunition for this other crowd. That's so sweet that Jezebel can come in and say, well now, we'll not tear down the altar to Jehovah, we'll just put up an altar to Baal beside the altar to Jehovah. Couldn't be anything wrong with that, could there? You see, they had a lot of agape at Thyatira, a lot of love. We hear a lot about that today. We can't have too much of it, but you can mix it, or at least it seems they did mix it here with a 
lenience and the tolerance of false doctrine, and our Lord stands up and condemns it in terrific terms. It is true that we have folks who are so orthodox that uh, they are belligerent instead of militant and they lose the love contending for the faith, but we also have some folks who have succumbed to that gentle amiability that would get along with the devil himself. And the thing that she brought about in Israel and the thing that our Lord warns against in Thyatira is spiritual adultery. Our God's a jealous God, and the word is spelled with a capital J in the Old Testament. And God uses the marriage relationship both in the Old Testament with Israel and in the New Testament with the church to set forth the relation of the believer and of the church to the Lord. Jeremiah 3.14, I'm married to you. And then the whole book of Hosea follows that theme. Romans 7.4 says we're married to another. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I've espoused you to one husband. And James was talking to church members, don't ever forget it, when he said, ye adulterers. And adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now, beloved, that's a terrific statement. Somebody asked me some time ago, how can a Christian be God's enemy? Well, there it is. If you're a friend of this world, you're God's enemy, so James 4.4 4 says, and it deals, adulterers and adulteresses, any unfaithfulness to Jesus Christ is adultery in the sight of our Lord, just as in the Old Testament the word was used of the defection of Israel. When people get married... They assume responsibilities and they take vows and they make promises. And when we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we do the same thing. Some church members wouldn't think of being untrue to their marriage vows, but they don't seem to mind being untrue to their vows to Christ and to his church. Some people want all the privileges of marriage and none of the responsibilities. And some people want the same thing in religion. They want all the privileges of being a Christian, none of the responsibilities. And they want preachers to promise them much and demand very little. We have a wonderful old song that we maybe don't sing as much as we ought. Oh, Jesus, I have promised. That's a song of marriage vows to the Lord. Oh, let me feel thee near me, the world is ever near. I see the sights that dazzle, the tempting sounds I hear. My foes are ever near me, around me and within. But Jesus, draw me nearer and shield my soul from sin. That's a song of our marriage vows to Jesus. The 51st Psalm is based on that. David had committed physical adultery, to be sure. But you can take the entire 51st Psalm and apply it to the church in praying for revival. It fits perfectly. Now the trouble with Pergamos and Thyatira was they put up with Balaamism and with Baalism instead of taking a stand like our Lord did here in direct opposition. And I'm, I'm quite sure some of those church members thought they were exercising Christian charity and forbearance. They thought it was a lovely thing not to say anything about Jezebel. I imagine they had some good women and good men in the church who said, Oh yes, I know we have Jezebel here. And I know that she's leading some of the people astray. But oh, let's not stir up any trouble. I want to look on the bright side of things. I'm just not going to take a stand about it. But our Lord says, I'm taking a stand. And if there isn't some repentance, Around here, I am going to deal most severely with Jezebel. 
I think some of these folks thought they were broad-minded. They thought their minds were broadening when really their consciences were stretching. And there's a lot of difference between the broadening of your mind and the stretching of your conscience. And sometimes we stretch our consciences today to cover things that we once supposed. Beloved, this is a tragic hour today for getting along. We are beset with get-alongism today. We've tried it with communism and it won't work. It isn't working. It never will work. It's impossible to live at peace with organized lawlessness. You can't sit down at a table and talk things over with a crowd that won't play by any rules except their own. You just can't do it. And you can't do it in the church. You cannot peacefully coexist with the world, the flesh, and the devil, with Balaam and with Jezebel, with worldliness and with false doctrine. Why, according to this new policy, uh, our Lord would never have denounced the Pharisees in the 23rd chapter of Matthew. Why didn't he uh, get them together and say, now look here, you're the old religious leaders, and uh, maybe we can work out something. There is not the slightest indication that he ever tried to work out anything at that crowd. He blasted them with terrific denunciation throughout that chapter. Why didn't Paul and Peter get together at Antioch? And why didn't Paul say to Peter, Now you've been an apostle longer than I have. Uh, we don't want to create a scene. So let's get off somewhere and patch up this thing. But beloved, when it's something that you can't patch up. Now a lot of things that we fuss about today ought to be settled quietly. The trouble is today we're fussing about a lot of silly things and not taking a stand about big things. Paul took a stand out in the open against a man as great as Simon Peter because there was a tremendous issue at stake. And when there's a tremendous issue at stake, we ought to do it, to be sure. But I like old Elijah, the greatest statistic of them all that day. He didn't know much about tact. He hadn't read a lot of books on how to be tactful. John the Baptist hadn't either, I suppose, because he said to Herod, you've got no business living with that woman. Now that wasn't an elegant way to go about it. Don't you think there ought to be some nicer way of saying a thing like that? No wonder they brought his head in on a charger. You're going to say anything like that today, you better be ready for the axe man. He'll be the next thing in line. You say that's all Old Testament and before Jesus. Yeah, but my Lord called a king a fox. I don't find much of that uh, gentle tact in the New Testament. So Elijah said, now let's have a showdown. Thank God for a man who could pray down fire and pray down water, whatever they happened to need. He was on good terms with God. And the fire fell, and the next thing I know, there was a sound of abundance of rain. Have you noticed, beloved, that Elijah did not call these 850 stooges of Jezebel and Baal together and say, now let's work out something? Don't you think it would have been nicer if he'd have gotten together with them, said, let's have a conference, maybe we can reach an agreement? Oh, no. There cannot be a double altar. And you read here that part of this crowd ate at Jezebel's table. One reason why revival is not breaking out in our churches today is because too many folks on Sunday morning, too many members have come straight from Jezebel's table. Some of them have been up so late on Saturday night that I'd hate to know when they went to bed and they were watching with 
bulging eyes, watching some portrayal from Jezebel's table. No wonder they don't like straight preaching from the word of God. They fed at all the lunch counters of Baal. And then if by chance there should stray into that pulpit some Elijah who stands up and says, let's have a showdown. Well, of course all those Jezebels and all who eat at her table would be willing to murder him on the spot. I see no other hope for a real awakening among the people of God. Now, there was another group, though, at Thyatira, beloved. He says, if you don't do something about this, I have a few things against thee because you put up with that woman Jezebel. I gave her space to repent. She didn't repent. I'll deal with her, verse 22, and I'll kill her children with death, verse 23. And then verse 24 is to the good folks in the church who did not practice Jezebelism. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which you have already. Hold fast till I come. Severe judgment in verse 22, but thank God for these precious words of 24 and 25. Now there you have your orders. Don't be led astray by any siren voices, no matter where they come from. Don't be led astray by isms and schisms and revelations and these folks that think they've had a vision when they've just had a nightmare. Don't be hoodwinked and taken for a ride and sold down the river by trans and approaches and a deluxe Christianity streamlined for these folks who cannot endure sound doctrine. You have one responsibility in this passage. I do think you have another one, not only to hold it fast, but hold it forth. But here it says, hold what you have till Jesus comes. We're living in Jezebel's day, but thank God the Lord's day is coming. Verses 26 and 28 to 28. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. We don't ordinarily think of our future in terms of verse 27. That we shall rule them with the rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers. And then verse 28, and I'll give him the morning star. That's our future. What is the morning star? Well, the morning star is the Lord Jesus himself because my God is not only the rewarder of them that seek him, but he's their reward too. Sometimes I think we make a Santa Claus out of the Lord. It's give me this and give me that. It's a great day for a Christian when he gets around to the place where he quits asking God just for this and that and is able to say, once earthly joy I craved, so peace and rest, now thee alone I seek, give what is best. And when you get to that place, beloved, you'll put up with what God gives you. And you won't always have the gimmies. And it's the rewarder that you want more than the reward. And he becomes your reward. So don't let any of these stars beguile you today. Movies, stars, or any other kind. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Turn many to righteousness and you shall shine as the stars. I'd like to ask you in this closing moment, are you tolerating Baal in your life? Do you have another altar set up there beside the altar to the Lord? Have done with it. Put away your strange gods. Go back up to Bethel where you first met the Lord. Renew the covenant there. 
I may speak to somebody who's never come to the Lord to begin with. And you're listening to the siren voices today. And you're enamored of this star and of that star. Would to God today that you might receive Christ in your heart. And fall in love with the bright morning star, the fairest of ten thousand. Let him be the attraction of your life from here on out. God help you to do that. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank thee that thou hast covered just about every kind of a church situation in these letters to these churches. Lord, we can't imagine any situation that isn't taken care of somewhere between Ephesus and Laodicea. Lord, we have considered today Thyatira, and never was it uh, more in keeping with the times than today. Put us on our guard, dear Lord, my soul, be on thy guard, ten thousand foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw us from the skies. Help us to try the spirits, whether they be of God. Grant unto us discernment today against pleasant voices, amiable voices that may come in with their insinuating charms to set up in our hearts and in our homes and, alas, in our churches, a strange God. Help us to remember that our Lord dealt most severely with this trouble here, said more about the evil than he did about the good in this case, Help us to revise our standards, Lord, not get them from men and prevailing trends down here. Help us to get our standards in this church age from the Lord of the lampstands and the Christ of the candlestick, saying to us, Repent or else. God, give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and help anyone who has heard this morning to part with Baal and to get right with God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Vance Havner. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.